the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com where you can get... uh, Podcasts. You can also get them on iTunes and Spotify and on social media at Dan Proft or at Dan Proft Show. Rand Paul did more than just initiate a straw vote to uh, make it clear that impeachment 2.0 is going nowhere. That's what everybody's focused on. What people should be focused on instead, or in addition to at minimum, is what he had to say on the floor of the Senate. The standard he tried to reestablish as it comes to both impeachment and this a charge of incitement to riot. This sham of an impeachment will ostensibly ask whether the president incited the reprehensible behavior and violence of January 6th. When he said, I know everyone here will soon march to the Capitol to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Peacefully and patriotically hardly words of violence. He also went uh, through examples of the bellicose rhetoric of Democrats, which we've played on this show before. Maxine Waters getting up in their face. Cory Booker, obviously the uh, incantations of the Bernie Sanders supporter who opened fire on the softball practice and shot Steve Scalise, nearly killing him. That was all predicated on uh, Bernie's position on health care and that the Republican position on health care was essentially to kill people, to allow people to die who couldn't get access to health care. That was invoked by the that uh, shooter. But nobody has suggested any of those members be removed, that any of those members be impeached, that any of those members, their rhetoric incited violence because there's a standard it's enshrined in the First Amendment. It's enshrined in Supreme Court jurisprudence in the Brandenburg v. Ohio case, as we've talked about in this show. There is a standard. And it's important that uh, somebody starts making the arguments on the merits rather than just reacting to the protestations of the left as to what they have said is the big lie. Rand Paul wouldn't genuflect before Stephanopoulos on Sunday. And the Republican Party as a whole needs to be proactive needs to be on offense against statements like Jake Tapper made yesterday. Let me interrupt you because uh, Senator Josh Hawley was just signing his name in uh, the Missouri Republican who was one of those uh, who was pushing this big lie that the election could be overturned on January 6th. That was part of the reason uh, there was this incitement and false belief by many of the insurrectionists uh, when they stormed uh, the Capitol. Um, uh, Laura Coates, let me bring you in uh, along with Norm here. How does somebody like Josh Hawley get treated in this? He's obviously a juror, but one could argue he should also uh, be a co-defendant uh, in the sense that he and Ted Cruz were 
also responsible for pushing the big lie, which maybe their words that day didn't incite, but their contribution to this fiction that the election was stolen and could be overturned on January 6th, they, they played a role. Yeah, and Jake Tapper is the big liar here, and he's not alone, pushing all sorts of little lies, I suppose. Although they combined, they add up to a big lie. Nothing wrong with the election, number one. Number two, uh, that uh, President Trump incited violence. Like his words don't matter to them. They impose meaning that they desire and also that Howley and Cruz suggested the election could be overturned on January 6th when they suggested nothing of the sort prior to January 6th or on January 6th. Their election objections, the, the substance of what was proposed mattered. Ted Cruz talked about a bipartisan commission. Now, I didn't agree with it. And this is Rand Paul's one. I didn't agree with my colleagues, but incited a riot, uh, sold a big lie. The only big lie being sold is by Jake Tapper and his friends in the D.C. press corps. Bipartisan commission to investigate unresolved election irregularities and offer some kind of report between January 6th and Biden's inauguration on January 20th. That's what Ted Cruz proposed. Never said an overturn. Josh Hawley wanted to use his opportunity to object to the certification to talk about the influence of big tech. Never mentioned anything about overturning. And yet it's there's not a lot of people making the arguments on the merits to provide the necessary pushback to this fiction to borrow a word from jake tapper being advanced by jake tapper at all for more on all this we're pleased to be joined again by julie kelly senior contributor for american greatness author of disloyal opposition how the never trump right tried and failed to take down the president julie thanks for joining us hi dan thanks for having me on so you did have uh, five senate republicans the usual suspects uh murkowski collins romney toomey sass uh vote with democrats here but obviously they're not going to get anywhere near the 17 they need mitch mcconnell doesn't seem inclined to uh advance uh this conviction and so uh, perhaps what they'll do is have the unintended consequence of making trump stronger uh by going forward with this uh, star chamber proceeding well, I've argued that we should proceed with the show trial, and I think what Rand Paul did yesterday is a perfect example of why, to the extent that they allow any witnesses. Now, we haven't seen any kind of outline as to what Chuck Schumer will allow. Obviously, with the last impeachment, they had a House, what did they call it, inquiry on the House side, so I'm not really sure what they're planning on the Senate side, but to the extent that it allows not just people like Rand Paul to expose the hypocrisy of what Democrats are now accusing Trump and Trump supporters of, but also to vet the facts of what happened on January 6th. The timeline doesn't add up. Trump's words do not back up their case that he incited this insurrection. We still, three weeks later, have no one charged in the killing of Officer Sicknick, although everyone accuses people like, even like Josh Hawley, of being complicit in murdering a police officer. There are a lot of things that we don't know that a trial will actually, to some extent, allow us to find out. And uh, what of uh, the um, uh, dissension in the ranks, in Republican ranks? I mean, do the 10 members of the House who voted for impeachment, do the five senators who seem inclined to vote to con- to convict five Republican senators, does that amount to a real real civil discord within the party, or is that something to be... Uh, you know, sort of quickly uh, dispatched and, uh, you know, move forward and focus on the Biden administration agenda? 
Well, I mean, I think that this sort of civil war that's happening in the Republican Party, it's been simmering now for years, but it's really bubbled up. And, you know, someone like Ben Sass, who just won re-election, who was silent about Trump until he got past his primary in May of last year, now has reemerged as one of the biggest never-Trumpers in the Senate. I'd really like to see them. You know, that vote yesterday was pretty easy. But I'd really like to see them put, you know, hold their feet to the fire, so to speak. Let's see if Ben Sass, you know, in Nebraska, who voted, what, probably two to one for Donald Trump, Let's see him actually have to vote on something that means something. Mitt Romney, we know, will. Lisa Murkowski is the only one who is up for re-election in 2022. Pat Toomey is retiring. Um, We now see Rob Portman retiring, the Republican senator from Ohio. That will open up. You know, these these senators know that that there is no tolerance for this kind of complicity with Democrats, or at least squishiness, to put it nicely, among uh, the Republican base right now. So I think the show trial will expose that and open up that chasm even more. And this is what needs to be done. But let's stand there's there's polls coming out. I'm sure that you saw them. There's still three quarters of Republican voters, even after all of this, who still believe that this election was stolen. Well, and, he, and, 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 and to that point, um, you do have some movement afoot, uh, uh, correspondence, at least uh, Republican senators in Pennsylvania, uh, talking about um, the uh, mail-in balloting there, calling the uh, process fraught with public confusion and misinformation. They're talking about changes they want to make in Pennsylvania. Even Brad Raffensperger in Georgia is saying that uh, he the, that there needs to be an end to no-excuse mail-in voting, that it opens the door to potential illegal voting. And you have Republicans in Arizona talking, uh, focusing on, on Maricopa County uh, and wanting to audit the election results there. So you, you do have Republicans at the state level in these key states that are are moving, and it's sort of indicative of what you say. They're feeling pressure to move because they're probably worried about being held accountable for what they didn't do during the, the election cycle. They're also they're going to lose the same way that they have allowed, they allowed Donald Trump to lose. And that was my piece this week in American Greatness. You have someone like Chris Christie, a lot of Republicans who are saying, look, there was nothing, there were, you know, usual irregularities, nothing unlawful. Um, the election wasn't stolen, but boy, we need some major election integrity reform. Well, why? If what happened in 2020 was totally legit, why don't we just keep those rules in place? Right. You can't, you can't say one and then defend the other. Makes no sense. So they kind of cancel out their own arguments. Julie Kelly, Senior Contributor for American Greatness, amgreatness.com. The book, Disloyal Opposition, How the Never Trump Right Tried and Failed to Take Down the President. Julie, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show uh, most people focused on what Rand paul had to say to the extent they focus on what Rand paul had to say as opposed to what the vote tally was about impeachment 2.0, sort of a straw vote, as we were discussing before the break with Julie Kelly. By the way, just one aside there, too. I mean, these guys. The statement that uh, Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy issued about uh, 
his impartiality as the presiding officer in the forthcoming trial on February 8th? <laughs> I mean, it, because John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, has uh, declined to preside over the trial. He doesn't have to. He's not a sitting president. I, I mean, King Henry VIII, his star chamber was more impartial. It was actually a model of impartiality as compared to Pat Leahy presiding over any sort of proceeding involving anybody who disagrees with him. It's just ridiculous. But this um, charade is what uh, they seek to impose. They have uh, orthodoxy on their side, so everybody will go along. And they, I guess, I don't know, hope that some people through their uh, dislike of Trump will uh, pretend they're not seeing this star chamber proceeding that they're actually saying. It's just ridiculous. But I wanted to get to something else that Rand Paul said. Well, another exchange that Rand Paul had. And this was with respect to... Anthony Blinken's confirmation as Joe Biden's secretary of state. Uh, you know, I, I've moved a lot, uh, I guess, since uh, 9-11 and the Iraq war, uh, a lot uh, uh, moved significantly in the direction of a non-interventionist like Paul. I'm not completely on board, uh, with, uh, uh, particularly with sort of his father and his perspective on Uh, key allies globally like Israel. But with respect to the regime change mistakes that are made over and over and over again, Republicans and Democrats, the received wisdom of the experts at statecraft in uh, the Pentagon and the State Department, senior levels of Republican and Democrat administrations over the last, certainly over the last 30 years, arguably more like over the last 60. uh, I think he raises some very good issues in the exchanges he had with Anthony Blinken, and, and, and they need to be heard. So Rand Paul's riff here, a sort of review of the last 30 years, the sorts of decisions that have been made by people like Blinken and administrations, including the ones that Biden, the one that Biden was a part of, and what they have wrought. Like Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton, you've been a consistent supporter of military intervention in the Middle East from the Iraq War to the Libyan War to the Syrian Civil War. Some on your side of the aisle, including the president-elect, have said, well, we were given bad uh, intelligence. They misled us on the intelligence on Iraq. That's a very specific reason. There's probably some truth to it. But I think it misses sort of the lesson of the Iraq War. Likewise, your justification for maybe coming to a new approach on the Libyan Civil War is, well, maybe we overestimated the idea of having viable successors there. To me, it seems like we're still missing the point, because even after Libya, you guys went on to Syria wanting to do the same thing again, and you've argued, well, maybe we just didn't do enough. If we'd done more, we could have toppled Assad, and we could have had real regime change in Syria. Well, you got it in Iraq, you got it in Libya, and it's a disaster. The lesson of these wars is that regime change doesn't work. People say, oh, we're going to get rid of the iron fist and Thomas Jefferson's going to arise from the ashes. Well, that, you know, is a naive notion to believe that Thomas Jefferson or his like live in Libya or live in Iraq. Their tradition is so much different than ours. I mean, we've been fighting against centralized power and the English tradition for a thousand years. Um, the revolution in England was 350 years ago. Ours was 250 years ago. That tradition they don't have. They have a tribal existence. Mm. You trade one for another. But mostly what you've gotten through the policies you have advocated, and Joe Biden has advocated, and frankly, John Bolton has advocated, this idea of regime change has been a disaster for the Middle East. We complain. Everybody around here is concerned. Iran, Iran, Iran. Well, why is Iran stronger? Who's their best friend in the region now? Iraq. You know, we did that. 
We had a balance of power. It wasn't perfect, but we had somewhat of a balance of power in the Middle East, and you guys messed it up. You got rid of the one bad guy, and another bad guy got stronger. And so then you went to Libya and did the same thing. And then you said, well, maybe Libya's a one-off. Well, maybe there's a rule here. Maybe there's something we can learn about regime change, and maybe we can learn that humility would be that maybe we shouldn't be choosing every government in the Middle East. I would argue that instead of always choosing the government, maybe we should not reward the bad ones. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. And the uh, exchange on Syria continued because uh, Blinken picked up on that rift to focus in on Syria and his opposition to military intervention on the scale that some had proposed. But uh, Rand Paul pointed out that's nice, but that's not good enough. Well, in, in, in Syria, in Syria, there were those who were advocating for uh, a repeat of uh, of Iraq, which is to say a whole scale intervention. That's something that I did not agree with when we were looking at um, what but, to do but, in but Afghanistan. Here's the problem in Syria. It's it, it is there was a predictable result there. Had you gotten rid of Assad, mm. who were the fiercest fighters over there? Mm. Al Nusra and Al Qaeda, mm. the most ra- the more radical you were, the better fighters you were. The program that you started with Hillary Clinton, the program to train these the moderate rebels. Mm. We spent 250 million. We trained about 60. We sent 10 of them into battle, and they were captured in the first 10 minutes. Mm. It was a complete disaster. This whole idea that there were moderates over there that we were going to support, doctors and lawyers and stuff, there were, but I don't think they were out there fighting. The ones out there fighting were jihadists, al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, and if they had taken over the country, Assad's a terrible person, but I'm not positive that these people would have been better. So it means the same lesson. Our humility has to be, let's quit toppling regimes over there. Let's don't support the bad ones, mm. but let's don't presume enough that if we topple them, that in the vacuum, Thomas Jefferson is going to arise because it never seems to happen. Humility, restraint, uh, narrow definition of national security interests. This was sort of the uh, calling card of the what was called principled realism under President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo. And Paul raises now that's retrospectively now prospectively to his point with the idea of uh, support for admitting Georgia, not the southern state, Georgia, the former Soviet bloc republic, which is occupied territory by Putin right now, admitting Georgia into the U.N., excuse me, into the, to NATO and what that could implicate, you know, how that could be, again, beating those drums here. We've seen, again, in the past that uh, countries that have um, joined NATO, have not been the same target of Russian aggression that we've seen. We were talking about 20 years ago, we might have a valid argument Mm -hmm. now. Russia occupies Georgia. Russia occupies or proxy troops occupy Mm -hmm. part of Ukraine. So I think adding either of them to NATO not only is provocative, but you'd have to you'd have to think what comes next. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're obligated to defend our uh, NATO allies, I mean, basically we'd be voting for war. So I wouldn't vote to add Georgia to NATO, not not on your life, unless I'm ready to send my kids and your kids to go fight in Georgia. Um, you know, the complicated fights and wars and occupation around. And I just think that uh, we need to think these things through. And I think for every provocation, there's a response mm-hmm. as well. So we mm-hmm. can't look at it in a vacuum. People say, I don't care what Russia thinks. Or I don't care what Tehran thinks. Well, if we don't understand our adversaries enough to think well, how they will respond, then I don't think I, we're doing our job. I agree with you. Yeah, agree with you. I just come to different conclusions once I've thought them through. And uh, as I think um, important as Rand Paul's observations were, to his larger point, is sort of about the bipartisan consensus on the sorts of interventions that we've tried 
Republican and Democrat regimes, particularly over the last uh, 20 years. Anthony Blinken got confirmed 78 to 22. This is Dan Proft. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Montclair, New Jersey Superintendent Jonathan Pons uh, announced that it is with deep regret the schools will remain closed. They uh, have been closed for the past 320 days. They won't even be opening on a hybrid basis because negotiations between the school district and the teachers union in Montclair, New Jersey, broke down. Uh, I realize how unsettling this news is, added uh, Superintendent uh, Pons. The uh, union said, you know, maybe another year before uh, it's safe to reopen. Yeah. Uh, Yesterday, Chicago Public Schools told parents to keep their kids at home, even though the school had said they're back in school on Monday, because uh, the district uh, continues its negotiations with the Chicago Teachers Union, which has instructed its members not to report for in-person learning until an agreement is reached on a safe reopening plan. Joe Biden has weighed in on this on behalf of the Chicago Teachers Union. He knows they want to return to work. He just want he, they just want to do so safely. That's all. Of course. Obviously. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Carol, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Montclair, New Jersey, uh, Maplewood, New Jersey, mm-hmm. Chicago, yep. New York. You know, they just the teachers uh, union. Uh, rep- on behalf mm-hmm. of the teachers, they just want to make sure it's safe. What's wrong with that? Right. Yeah. And, you know, imagine we had a national media calling this out. That's what I keep going back to, that the politicians are weak, the unions are strong, and the media is completely compliant and non-existent. Uh, other than, you know, conservative-leaning media, nobody is pointing to this. And I have so many people reaching out to me and saying, I'm a liberal. I can't believe this is happening. Um, I can't believe that I'm on the side with the conservatives on this. And there's so many people like this because they are abandoned by their liberal politicians and their liberal media who have decided that school just doesn't matter that much. The truth is for kids K through 12, one of the safest places they can be from our perspective is to remain in school CDC mm-hmm. Director Robert Redfield said all the way back in November, and um, I thought that he was considered a man of science by these politicians yeah. and the teachers unions and the left, and, uh, and, and, and apparently not. Right. Well, that's really it, is that following the science is not something that we're doing anymore on any level. Uh, in areas that businesses open or close, uh, there's no scientific basis. I mean, California had closed their outdoor dining despite the fact that no evidence whatsoever that any spread was happening at outdoor dining facilities. And now they've reopened outdoor dining with the exact same numbers that they had when they closed it. So it really makes no sense. Uh, There's no science being followed whatsoever. And on the issue of schools, I think that the, the real thing is that the unions are 
in control of the conversation and that in order to get the control back, politicians will need to stand up to them. And I don't see that happening. You what, know, when what, you say, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah, but what, sorry, what, I was going to say, yeah. What, what, what about parents standing up to them? Right. What, those those liberals yeah. that are coming to you and say, I can't believe I'm on your right. side, Carol. Say, yeah. well, well, are you connecting dots, not just in this moment, but but beyond this moment? Are those dots going to stay connected? Yeah. So the thing is that they're generally not speaking up. They're afraid to be called, you know, teacher killers or uh, racist, you know, because every, everybody's racist, no matter what, what it is you disagree with the <laughs> the mainstream left opinion. Um, so they're afraid. And so they're not really speaking up. And, and for the most part, they're just moving away from these areas or they're sending their kids to private school, which is a very common solution uh, because private schools are obviously completely safe somehow in the same areas as these public schools are closed. No. So, you know, you said um, the conversation broke down with the unions. Well, but what it is is when the conversation breaks down with the unions, the politician has to say, no, you're going to work, and the union can go on strike, which is illegal. So they have to push them into the situation. When it, when when the conversation breaks down, I, I don't see that as the conversation breaking down. I see that as the union won that conversation. Um, and, and the more often that happens, the less likely our kids will ever get back to school. Uh, when we come back with Carol Markowitz, I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, what you wrote about in part in a recent column in the New York Post uh, about uh, Success Academy, which is a, a big charter school network in New York City. Also, um, just the more general topic of school choice and how those parents who are who are opting out are being treated by the unions, too. It's not enough to be silent. The unions are still coming after you. We'll pick that up with Carol Markowitz, columnist of the New York Post, right after this. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Uh, we're talking about uh, the return to school or the lack thereof in so many places, big cities. And also, and, and it's not just uh, school districts that are primarily lower income students either, black or brown students. I mean, in the, in the suburbs of Chicago, one of the wealthier suburbs, uh, Highland Park and Deerfield. Uh, that school has been, those schools have been shut down just as long as the Chicago public school system has been shut down. So it's it's a fear in addition to union control, but that union control is not limited to urban meccas. It's also in a lot of suburban communities too. And it impacts, it impacts, uh, it impacts the choices that parents have uh, even where they do have choices. And Carol, you wrote about success Academy and the announcement they made Mm -hmm. and what that announcement implicates. So success Academy is a charter school network, but they occupy space in New York city public school buildings. So they are at the whim of the public school system in New York. So, for example, in New York, if there are two unrelated cases in a school, the school shuts down for two weeks. And in a time where this pandemic is happening, there will be two cases fairly frequently in schools. I mean, it is still 
the least likely place to get COVID, but two cases in a school building of maybe thousands of people is not that, you know, outlandish. So when these school buildings close, Success Academy would have to close with them, even if, let's say, the cases were not in the Success Academy part of the school because the building closes. So Success, feeling like they're at the whim of this really insane system, went all remote this year. And so because they're very dedicated to academics and they didn't want to go back and forth and back and forth, so they went all remote. And then a few days ago, they announced that they were staying remote for the end of this year and they were opening hybrid in September. Now, the thing is that New York City schools are, uh, the elementary schools are hybrid right now. Uh, Middle school and high school are all remote. But Success Academy saying that they're going hybrid in September is admission to me that everybody's going hybrid in September, Mm. that there won't be full-time school in September, even with vaccinations, because the rules are so onerous about social distancing to have six feet of space between every single person in the classroom, that there's no way to offer full-time school. And I think uh, I've been saying this for a long, long time months and months of saying, I don't think school comes back in September either. And so much of the pushback I get is, no, no, it'll be fine. We'll vaccinate. It'll be great. Like you'll see, it'll be totally back to normal in September, but it won't be because we have these crazy rules and because we won't have vaccination for kids. They're not even doing trials yet on kids under 12. So I've been predicting no return to normalcy in September. Success Academy's announcement just confirmed that for me. Well, and and two, what we're seeing is uh, the forever changing the, uh, the 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 standard for return. So, uh, if uh, if we have vaccinations, then it's all the teachers need to be vaccinated. If it's if we're moving in the direction of all the teachers need to be vaccinated, then it's all the kids need to be vaccinated. Right. Then it's all the the siblings of the kids in schools that need to be yeah. vaccinated. Then it's in San Francisco, all the toilets need to have toilet lids on them. The ones that don't have toilet lids. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's just nonstop. Uh, the the imagination runs wild with all the things yeah. that we can mandate in so, so as to condition our return to work, uh, the m- millions of dollars in new ventilation systems and so on and so forth. It's just endless. Right. Yeah. I've been saying since the beginning that we should look to Europe. European cities open their schools, schools open before anything else. They did not update their ventilation systems. They do not do social distancing. In most cases, they don't even wear masks under 12 years old, with very few exceptions. There's a couple of countries that kind of do what we do, but in general, they don't. And yet they are seeing the same thing we're seeing, that children generally do not contract this. Children generally do not pass this along. And it's extremely rare for a child to give coronavirus to a grown-up. So the idea in the beginning that like a child will get coronavirus in school and come home and give it to their family. It it happens. I'm not saying it never happens, but it is an extremely rare circumstance that we are just, we cannot rearrange our entire system over. What do you think about the migration away from the government schools, even charter schools? You know, we're seeing people physically migrating away from places like New York and Chicago and L.A. What about migrating permanently from the government school system, even charter schools, the Success Academy? It would provide a good rationale why into private schooling. Do you see a real uh, permanent shift in where kids get educated post-pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in New York, the Catholic school system, which had been sort of in trouble and was had dwindling uh, enrollment, is, has seen such a boom this year. And I think that's going to continue. People saw which school systems took education seriously, took in-person learning seriously. And I think it's going to be very hard to unsee that. My own family, I think 
you know, we talk about Florida all the time and the fact that Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida made school openings such a priority. And he said, if you're going to close anything, any business, any schools, you need to have rationale for it. And to me, that's not irresponsible. That's the most responsible way to do it. I think so many states should have that same guideline and they don't. Well, and the other thing you see happening, too, there was a good piece in Reason uh, magazine about this. Uh, you have uh, the unions uh, vilifying those who opt out. I mean, uh, the, you, <laughs> you opt out. They're not exactly uh, desiring you to come back because you're a racist. You're uh, going right. to widen the divide between the haves and the have nots and the educated and the less well-educated and so forth. You're yeah. a bad person. You're a radical. You're an ideologue. Right. Well, so that's the thing. I think that they don't realize that People just don't care about that kind of rhetoric. And I have three kids, and they're my priority. My priority is not the teachers' union and how to make them happy and how to make them feel that I'm not um, all these things that they that they say I am. My priority is to my children, and I, I'm not alone in that. That's the general perspective of parents. And you know, one thing that I can point to is a lot of parents chose remote learning this year because they were afraid, and they're afraid for their kids, and they had this, you know fearful rhetoric from their politicians, from these teachers' unions, and they chose what they thought was best for their children. And that's what parents are going to do. And so the unions can try this line about widening the divide and whatever, but they're widening the divide. They're the ones doing this. They're the ones keeping kids out of school. They're the ones making uh, education such a, such a gulf in the educational experience between kids. One thing I always point out in New York, for example, Kids in Queens might not have had a day of school since March, where kids in Long Island, a mile away, are in school every single day. Mm-hmm. Nothing will increase the divide between educational experiences of kids more than going to school or not going to school. She is Carol Markowitz, columnist at the New York Post. Carol, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We'll uh, talk about uh, Joe Biden's executive order on uh, racial political indoctrination coming up in the program. But uh, just quickly, I'm sort of uh, amused by some of the reaction to his executive order on LGBTQ, both uh, with respect to sports as well as the military, promoting uh, trans individuals in the military, uh, rescinding the Trump ban on military funding for sex reassignment surgeries, and uh, signing an executive order forcing schools that accept public funding to allow biological boys to compete in sports with biological girls. Why are you surprised? This has been going on for years. On, uh, I've only been doing this show for a year, but uh, the show in Chicago I've done for six and was on another station for four before that. I've been talking about that for the better part of the last decade. And what have we seen in instance after instance, with a few exceptions? More recently, uh, a lawsuit filed in Connecticut uh, against a, a school district that was allowing biological men to dominate women's track championships at the high school level. 
There's been some legislative initiatives in places like Idaho. But for the most part, the response has been deference, deference, deference. And so since the watchword among conservatives is accountability, how about some accountability here? As social conservatives are often shunted aside by the fraudulent fiscal conservatives and social moderates, which is to say slow-walking leftists within Republican ranks, enemies inside the perimeter. And uh, if accountability is something that is important when it comes to law enforcement, when it comes to intel agencies, when it comes to political leaders, how about when it comes to us, conservatives, erstwhile conservatives, the Republican Party? The response on these LGBTQ issues has almost invariably been deference. Don't want to take up the fight at at the district level in my school district where my kids go. And by the way, you need to rewind a little bit and be accountable for the redefinition culture that was introduced when you had a bunch of, again, self-style conservatives who, interestingly, many of whom, interestingly, turned out to be never Trumpers. Not that he's some great cultural conservative, but in terms of policy, he actually was sort of, wasn't he? But Jonah Goldberg was on board for civil unions. And so are a lot of other conservatives, erstwhile conservatives, self-style conservatives. Uh, Once you got on board the redefinition of marriage bandwagon, you were along for the ride all the way to this place. So what did Joe Biden do? He just consummated into law what conservatives have been conceding for the better part of the last decade. And now it will be visited upon the homes through their daughters, their daughters' ability to play sports and so forth, visited upon some of the homes of some of the people who thought, it's not my fight, not my fight, and I don't want to upset anybody, so I'll participate in a fraud. I'll indulge a lie rather than hurt anybody's feelings. Okay. Well, there's consequences to that. Right? Now you're accountable. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Joe Biden uh, making uh, public remarks about his uh, racial indoctrination executive order, going uh, full Beatles on us. Just imagine if instead of uh, consigning millions of American children to under-resourced schools, we gave each and every three, four-year-old child a chance to learn, to go to school, not daycare, to school, and grow. Instead of denying millions of Americans the ability to own a home and build generational wealth, just imagine, instead of denying millions of young entrepreneurs the ability to access capital, Living we made in it harmony. to take their dream to market, create jobs, reinvest in their own communities. Does anyone doubt this whole nation wouldn't be better off? Well, I like, uh, I like Biden combined with John Lennon because they're both sort of warm milk for me. Warm milk, music, warm milk political rhetoric. And that's really the point of Joe Biden is warm milk, uh, seduce you into a trance, uh, go to sleep, wake up in a gulag. That's the progression. 
Yeah, this is a, a big one uh, because this is about uh, codifying the race hustle. Uh, so imagine Head Start Redux. We know actually Head Start was a failure as a program, but so we don't need to imagine it. We've lived through it. Imagine uh, home ownership. Instead of denying millions of a home, we give them a home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did that in the run up to the 2008 uh, housing bubble bursting, and I don't, and, and I wouldn't say that was the proximate cause, but certainly lending to people who do not qualify, who do not have the creditworthiness, who do not have the income then to sustain home ownership is bad public policy. But this is all prosecuting the left's war on poverty through big government social engineering programs targeted at minorities. We have done nothing with respect to redlining. We've done nothing in terms of spending on K-12 through education. This is what the left would have you believe. And, and we've done nothing with respect to investment in, in entrepreneurship either, particularly with respect to, you know, BIPOCs, black indigenous people of color, as they're now called, which is also an Orwellian acronym. But that's how the left refers to them. What's the Small Business Administration do? What, what, what did places like Grameen Bank what do they do? The micro lending that has uh, become so popular, at least it was pre-pandemic in the developing world. We need government agencies redirected to focus on racial equity. Do we even understand what racial equity is when they say that? Because equity sounds like equality. Are, are people clear on the term equity versus equality? Do you know what the left is saying? I don't think most people do. Uh, I, I'll tell you, um, rather than have me explain it again, on, over the weekend on uh, Bill Maher's show on HBO, there was a podcaster named Kameli Foster. He went on a great riff, equity versus equality. Towards equity, racial equity, and a focus disproportionately on outcomes is something that is rather new, but seems to have taken the country by storm. It's, and, it's yeah, almost the only thing people can talk about. Equity meaning as opposed to equality. Equity as opposed to equality. Which, can you... I can give you a practical example of that. Yes. COVID, we were just talking about a moment ago. We know that the most vulnerable population when it comes to COVID are older people. That if I took people over the age of 55, sure. that's 80% of the deaths. There have been actual conversations about prioritizing people on the basis of their race because COVID is said to disproportionately impact black people relative to white people. It is a ridiculous proposition, but it's a proposition that's found its way into the mouths of governors here in California, the, the pages of the New York Times. We're actively Why talking about this kind though? of ridiculous because we actually know when we look at the global impact of COVID in the United States, again, 80% of the people who are dying are older, around 18% of the people who are dying are black. A life lost to COVID is a life that matters. And we can well, focus on the people who are vulnerable without making this about race. Making it about race only obscures the actual issue. If it is separate, help, if you help. separate race from economic insecurity, sure, right? Like, like Hispanics are hospitalized at three, four times the rate as, of white people for a variety of reasons. For a variety of they're essential reasons. workers. Right. They're riding the bus from Boyle Heights to Beverly Hills. But the important point is that it's not fundamentally about race. You can't un-Hispanic them. There may be different issues in their communities. It could be that they live in well, in homes with more people. It could be that they live in more urban centers. If that's the case, the policy you're tailoring is for people in urban centers, not Latinos. This is a confusion of categories that is actually distracting us from forging good policy. What you get is great sound bites 
you right. don't actually fix problems. It always it, it, it makes people. Wow. There's this. <laughs> he even he even flipped Bill Maher's idiotic audience. You get great sound points, sound bites. You don't solve any problems. Equity versus equality. And by the way, uh, Biden yesterday tripped up on the difference, which tells you they're attempting to conflate the two. Just imagine. Instead of denying millions of young entrepreneurs the ability to access capital, we made it possible. But to do this, I believe this nation and this government need to change our whole approach to the issue of racial equity. Yes, we need criminal justice reform, but that isn't nearly enough. That's a tell. And so uh, when it comes to racial equity, I mean that the handle on this, Kimberly Foster gave a good example to make it concrete. And, you know, running into interference from whether dopes were on Mars panel, he had to, you know, essentially explain at a grade school level. And he did a very nice job of doing so. It's basically comes down to the old opportunity is equality. Outcome is equity. That's what those two words are synonymous with. And it's interesting. You know, why does the left continue on its advance? Because they're always coming up with a kitschy, innovative new way to pretend that uh, the enduring value values of old are passe. And, you know, these conservatives sort of are, are stuck because we're, we're making the same arguments because we know what works. We know what's always worked. And we can point to historical examples where we strayed from those enduring values and it didn't work and it hurt people and it was unfair to people. Then it's easy to accept that that's the case because you believe in a certain way that society should be ordered and on, on the principles of which it should be based. And so, by the way, attendant to Biden's discourse yesterday, the focus was on, oh, he's uh, ending DOJ contracts with private prisons. That's that's the way to get racial equity. That's the way to unify the country. It's just a straight up pander. Listen, even how Biden talks about Asian Americans and the discrimination or the the uh, hate that they faced. Today, I'm directing federal agencies to combat resurgence of xenophobia, particularly against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders that we've seen skyrocket during this pandemic. This is unacceptable and it's un-American. I've asked the Department of Justice to strengthen this partnership with the Asian American and Pacific Islander community to prevent those hate crimes. Yeah, I'd like to see the data. He's saying they're being criminally victimized because they're Asian Americans, because what people because people uh, understand that the virus originated in China. Is that happening? I'd like to see I'd I'd like to see I'd even take anecdotes, because when when I think of discrimination against uh, Asians in this country, what do you think of? Uh, I think of, for example, identitarian hacks in the Ivy League that artificially reduce their character scores to try to prevent as more Asian-Americans from being admitted based on the merits. Remember that lawsuit against Harvard and the Ivy League schools? The Asian-American discrimination is not about hate crimes because uh, COVID-19 originated in China. Asian-American discrimination is is because of their overrepresentation in academia, because of their, their, their high median household income by category as compared to all other racial demographics. That's the... Uh, discrimination. And also we have to rewrite our history so that we can legitimize the outcomes. Joe Biden on decommissioning President Trump's 1776 commission. That's why I'm rescinding the previous administration's harmful ban on diversity and sensitivity training and abolish the offensive counterfactual 1776 commission. Unity and healing 
must begin with understanding and truth, not ignorance and lies. 1776 Commission, Ignorance and Lies. The executive director, Matthew Spaulding from Hillsdale College, I spoke to yesterday. You should check it out on my podcast. Carol Swain from Vanderbilt was part of that commission, who's a, a black female professor, now retired. We've, you've heard her on this show. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson, part of that commission. Uh, any number of, I mean, I go through the list, any number of eminent scholars, all races. And it's a counterfactual. You, you know the names that are most mentioned in that uh, 1776 commission report, which you can't find at the White House website anymore, but it's out there. I'll tweet it out, too. Martin Luther King and Frederick Douglass, who 100 years apart made the same argument, which is exactly the opposite argument of Joe Biden and the left. They, they talk unity and they, they try to foment a race war. And oh, by the way, this is on the cusp of Black Lives Matter week in your kids' schools for those who are actually in school. You cannot let them get away with this sort of flimflammery that Joe Biden can get away with because he doesn't have to answer questions from anybody. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the show switching gears and uh, turning to uh, the state of play with covid19 vaccinations by administration announcing tuesday that it would uh, Purchase an additional 100 million doses of each of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, increasing the total U.S. vaccine order by uh, 50 percent to 600 million doses from 400 million. Let's see if the new CDC director can keep track of the number of doses we have now uh, to distribute. And she was a little bit confused earlier in the week. But um, the stockpile is interesting. The implementation more interesting. And so, for example, In Virginia, hospitals in Virginia no longer able to administer COVID-19 vaccines. Thousands of elderly people are having their vaccine appointments canceled. All COVID-19 vaccines now will go through the local health departments in Virginia, none directly to hospitals. At the before this, the Virginia Hospital Center had been running clinics all day, every day to give people the vaccine. Appointments for the first dose vaccines have been canceled because the hospital won't get it anymore. Northam's Governor Northam's health department also uh, has forbidden people from crossing county lines to get the vaccine. If the county next to you has an abundance of vaccine, you can't get it. Only residents of the county uh, where the uh, vaccine is being distributed can get the vaccine. Everyone has to go through their local health department. Why? How does this make sense? Particularly as we see other states leveraging their private health care infrastructure to distribute the vaccines more effectively, doing a much better job much more quickly and getting high-risk populations vaccinated, like those residents of long-term care facilities, and then moving down the risk plane to those less at risk, places like West Virginia, the Dakotas. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Lyndon Haviland, Dr. Lyndon Haviland, Distinguished Scholar at the CUNY School of Public Health and Health Policy. Dr. Haviland, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So um, the vaccine distribution, it's, uh, I think it's a little perplexing to a lot of people as we're getting stories from different states doing it differently, some seemingly more effective than others, and yet 
uh, those states that are most effective, uh, the model they have is not necessarily being followed by states that have proven less effective, like, say, Virginia. Well, Dan, you have put your hand right on the biggest problem we face, as usual, which is that when we have a state-by-state strategy, chaos erupts. On some level, it's great that states can plan based on their reality. And as you point out, North Dakota, South Dakota, West Virginia, New Mexico, states that are not usually in the top ten are doing extremely well. They're doing well because they have plan, they have leadership. New Mexico is like many states. They put together a registry where you can log in, you can put in your information. Are you healthcare personnel? Do you live in a long-term facility? Are you a frontline worker? Do you have underlying medical conditions? And what is your zip code? And so then it, that registry informs you when you might be able to get a vaccine. So I think states that have taken this very strong approach have seen great results like North Dakota and West Virginia. The issue, though, has been, as you point out, the changing number of vaccine doses actually available. So many states have had a little chaos where they were planning for uh, a certain number of vaccinations and the vaccine supplies have not arrived. It's very encouraging that the Biden administration has increased their um, order for vaccines and it's also very encouraging that perhaps later this week we'll get the results from the Johnson & Johnson um, vaccine trials. And that vaccine, of course, is not a two-shot vaccine. It's a one-shot vaccine. And so just, again, going to other states and, and the different approaches, uh, we see in Oregon that are weighing race-based vaccine preferences. Uh, Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot in Chicago has suggested something along those lines, too, using equity as a consideration. I mean, is it uh, sensible, more sensible, even if it's not going to be federal, federally mandated, to say, here's what we know. We know that the risk increases exponentially as you go up age demographics. So let's focus on the people that are most at risk, and that's by age, not by race, and let's work down by age. Well, actually, I think the point is to look at, like, who is most impacted. We know that when you're using an equity lens like Oregon or Chicago, we are seeing a disproportionate impact on communities of color. And so you really need to look at what are the overall rates of disease in your community, which is why actually a state-by-state plan makes the most sense, although it should be guided by the science. And the science is about the rates of disease in your state and in your community. But, but don't you have to, t- I'm sorry to interrupt, but don't you have to t- sort of take a general approach? I mean, you can't really do a workup on, like, for example, in Illinois, 13 million people. So you have to say, well, wait, here's what we know, whether you're, you're black or you're white or you're Latino, if you're over 70, you're in, in you know, your priority because you're in the highest risk category and it's exponentially more than the next age demographic down and, and, and then so forth down to kids. I mean, doesn't that make more sense than, you know, trying to qualify who is necessarily obese and how much, if you'll pardon the pun, weight that should be given to your prioritization and and so on and so forth? It just seems then you get into all of these variables that just make it very complicated to prioritize. I don't think the health department thinks it's that complicated. When When the health department is gathering data that demonstrates what's happening in their jurisdiction, where they are seeing that it is not where the number one issue is about race 
I think minority populations who are, first of all, they're often disproportionately healthcare personnel. So they are healthcare workers. And what we're seeing right now, I mean, I'm actually more concerned in places where healthcare workers, because they are on the front lines, are not getting access to these vaccines. And 30% of healthcare workers in some states are saying, no, I don't want that vaccine because of vaccine hesitancy. And vaccine hesitancy, as you know, is a real issue where especially, which is why I find it fascinating that North Dakota and West Virginia have done so well on vaccine delivery, because it's in rural populations that we're seeing the greatest amount of vaccine hesitancy, where people are afraid of vaccines. Although in, in New York, uh, it was reported in the Post this week, 44% of long-term care workers uh, are now inoculated. That's up slightly from 37%, but it's still a real problem in New York City. Exactly. And, and again, that goes to the issue of who are those long-term care workers. Often they are um, Latino or African-American, or, um, and they have a justified and historic mistrust of the health care system. People are saying, well, why, would the, why would the government give a vaccine? For free. Well, and but look, if if they want to pass, unless and until unless we want to talk about mandating it, if they want to pass, then you know you go to next in line, right? We don't have time to goof around about this. No, you're exactly correct, but it is an issue where I think a centrally uh, done campaign of communication about the safety of these vaccines would be really helpful, and so that's why in some places you're seeing specific outreach to communities with targeted messages about vaccine safety and about the idea that by taking this vaccine, you are protecting yourself and protecting others. She is Dr. Lyndon Haviland, Distinguished Scholar at the CUNY School of Public Health and Health Policy. Dr. Haviland, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Dan, thanks for having me. Have a lovely day. You too. Take care. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, and uh, per President Biden's executive order on diversity and basically race identity politics, Susan Rice joined Jen Saki for the White House press briefing, Susan Rice. You remember her from her time as a uh, pundit in exile while awaiting a Biden administration after unsuccessfully trying to gaslight the public into believing that uh, the terrorist attack in Benghazi that took Ambassador Stevens and his men was the result of a video and it was spontaneous in nature. That's Susan Rice. Obama national security advisor turned Biden domestic policy advisor. The existential threat facing us in 2021, not a, uh, a video that would inspire a terrorist attack on an American compound in Libya, but uh, white supremacy, white nationalism. We have seen and it's been plain for all Americans on their television sets just how serious a problem uh, we face from nationalists and white supremacists who uh, uh, have demonstrated willingness to resort to violence in some instances. Um, And that is why um, the president has ordered uh, the intelligence community to compile a comprehensive assessment uh, of the nature of this threat and challenge and its uh, origins and roots, 
um, and thus provide policymakers with inputs that will be very important to um, uh, address this challenge. The National Security Council has uh, set up uh, a capacity within the NSC to focus on domestic violent extremism uh, and to ensure that uh, we are uh, within the White House and within the interagency uh, coordinating efforts to, to, to craft and implement policies that will address this. So we're taking it quite seriously. Yeah, well, that is a lot of words to say something very simple. We're going to use the power of the intelligence community to identify and amplify any examples of uh, violent conduct by those motivated by racism. We're going to do it um, narrowly, and we're going to ignore when it manifests itself in other forms. And this will be the predicate to continue what we see ongoing, which is my disagreement with you is rooted in race, and therefore your speech is violent, and you're a violent extremist, and you need to be shut up. Because there is no one running around defending ignorant white supremacists. This is about something much bigger, in my estimation, and basically from the work product that we've seen from the censorious set like Susan Rice. But I better bump this up against somebody who knows more than I do. I'm going to do that by asking John Tierney now to join us. John Tierney, who is a contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist of the New York Times, co-author of the book The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Rule, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me, Dan. Am I uh, reading uh, too much into what Susan Rice and President Biden had to say, or is that uh, was what I said a, re- a reflection of what we see playing out in real time? No, it's what we're seeing uh, play out because it's a new domestic war on terror. And part of that is increased uh, surveillance, and part of it is censorship. Uh, we're seeing this now with this unprecedented social media crackdown by shutting down platforms. Journalists used to want to just de-platform individual uh, terrorists, but now they want to basically shut down the whole platforms. We have, uh, yeah, not not just Parler. I mean, we have journalists wanting to make Fox News illegal. That was a tweet from a former New York Times columnist this week. We have Pulitzer Prize winning journalism professors like Steve Call at uh, Columbia who are telling us we need to revisit the First Amendment. It, it no longer works for us in 2020 America. This is from a, the perspective of the fourth estate, no less. Right. It's shocking to me how journalists are, are doing this, because there used to at least be this general agreement that both left and right, censorship is bad for our business. You know, our profession depends on free speech, and, and we should stand up for each other when it's threatened. But now we have newsrooms that have been taken over by this young generation of progressives who think they're on the right side of history, and they're not afraid of being censored themselves, and, and so they just want to shut up everyone else. It's been amazing to me to be these calls that uh, uh, we have to start enforcing truth-telling. And there was so little complaint when Amazon and, and, Go- and Apple and Google, you know, combined to shut down Parler. And, uh, you know, and our profession depends on the First Amendment, which gives you the right to print stuff that is deemed false by others, and on, and on Supreme Court decisions that protect speech. You know, even speakers who advocate generalized violence, you know, that you can't hold a speaker responsible for violence committed by someone else. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about a little bit more about rioters and free speech and whether we're moving uh, to a place in America where we're returning to uh, 
uh, Cato's letters and other Samistat, and that's the way we're going to have to uh, pass uh, unpopular opinions. More with John Tierney, contributing editor at City Journal, former reporter and columnist of the New York Times, co-author of the book The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. We'll be right back. Is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with John Tierney, contributing editor of City Journal, former reporter and columnist for the New York Times, co-author of the book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. And John, in a recent piece that you wrote for City Journal entitled The New Censors, you made this provocative claim the root cause of riots, uh, per some research into this, turned out to be the rioters. Wow. Explain. <laughs> what a concept. You know, after the um, uh, summer of riots in 1967, there was a, a you know, coroner commission appointed, and we have to find out what caused these riots, and we have to get, get at the root cause of them. And, and, of course, they came up with lots of recommendations. But peace did not return to the streets until police started adopting new crowd control tactics and until prosecutors began, you know, locking up people who rioted. I mean, that's how you stop riots. And and the conventional wisdom uh, among experts was that riots are not an indictment of American uh, society. It, it, it's not about injustice. It's failure. Riots are a failure of policing. And but that was last year. Once the time Black Lives Matter started rioting, then it was well. We have to understand what was causing this. We shouldn't be tear gassing these people. So there was all this outrage when you know mobs near the White House when they used tear gas, and and prosecutors and journalists in Seattle and Portland were you know were gassed. Uh, they were arresting these these mostly peaceful protests, and so the riots just kept continuing. But then it got even worse after the Capitol riot because, you know, this was not just a bunch of, of, of violent people who should be arrested and, pro- and prosecuted, but, it, but instead it, it was caused by free speech. That, you know, that Parler and Donald Trump and, 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 and these conservatives who have been tweeting, they were responsible for the riot and the way to stop this new civil war was to shut down platforms and shut down conservative voices. Yeah, it seems to me it's a, it's pretty easy to draw a bright line. And, and just to think about this logically for a second, I know that's not popular, but uh, people who are protesting, they have a particular grievance, they have something to say, they want to be able to say it. They're protesting, uh, they got a microphone, they get a bullhorn, they have something to say. Maybe it's defund the police, maybe it's eliminate qualified immunity, maybe it's spend more money on schools, whatever it is. On the other side, uh, on January 6th, maybe it's uh, the election was stolen. Maybe it's you need to investigate these election irregularities. Maybe these uh, numbers don't make sense. Uh, maybe that we have to change the election laws at the state levels where the state's in question. But in both cases, the people who have something to say aren't going to resort to the violence that we have seen, whether it's on the city streets or in the nation's capital. It just sort of stands to reason. And conflating those two, purposely conflating those two groups, is the business of people who really want to shut down dissent by force. And that's what should be the most frightening, it seems to me. 
Right. This is an example of what I call the crisis crisis. Is the way politicians and the media exploit any crisis, you know, any vivid image. I mean, those are horrifying images from the Capitol, and they exploit that to basically expand their power, to silence their opponents, and, you know, and, and 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 to start this domestic war on terror. Uh, they didn't mind all the domestic terrorism, to use their words, that was going on last year in Seattle and Portland and in cities across America. But once their opponents do it, then then that becomes an excuse to, be, to curtail everyone's freedom. And, and, and the thing, too, is so, so who is being silenced, right? If that's the play and use the force of the state to silence, to marginalize, then who is being silenced? Uh, I, I take note that Ibram Kendi, uh, who has uh, become sort of the celebrity, quote-unquote, academic, uh, the, uh, the theorist of the anti-racist theory, nobody is either racist or not racist, you're racist or anti-racist, meaning if you are not actively uh, stamping out racism, and if you're a white person, that means by apologizing for the rest of your life, then you're suborning racism. He just got a deal with Netflix for three new projects uh, that advance his, uh, I think, uh, uh, pseudo-intellectual theories, but nonetheless... Uh, and if you but, but there's no room to challenge Ibram Kendi, I mean, other within within conservative media, there's no platform uh, to debate Ibram Kendi because he's one of those guys that to debate people who disagree with me is to legitimize them and and advance racism. So I'm not going to do it. I mean, I love the uh, the mental gymnastics that uh, mm-hmm. these race hustlers go through to avoid having to have a discussion about their theories. Uh, but. But so who who is being silenced or marginalized, deplatformed, and who is being amplified by all of the cultural institutions? Uh, and so I suppose they come to the conclusion, well, I've got all of this power behind me from corporate America, from the academy. Um, it's fine if we curtail the First Amendment because I'm going to be fine and my opponents aren't. Right. I mean, that's what the new censors think. It, the Silicon Valley is not going to censor me. And and the Democrats in Washington are, are not going to censor me. They're not going to investigate my group. So they think that they'll get away with it. But the fact is that the Republicans are going to come back to power at them. And these precedents, these weapons that they're talking about creating to suppress peace, you know, will be used against them. I mean, they'll be, you know, the terrible thing is that politicians of both parties like to expand their power, like to silence their opponents. And, and and what I'm afraid is that they're going to basically put these weapons in so there'll be bipartisan sense, censorship. Let, let me ask you a question. I, I revisit this question. Usually it's from, usually it's with like Rich Lowry or somebody of a national review, and you'll understand why in a second. But do you think a program like William F. Buckley's Firing Line, which I enjoyed growing up, even though it actually predated me by a number of years, but, you know, seeing it on videos and, and whatnot, could, could firing line a debate with uh, intellectuals and academics and thinkers from both sides tackling a public policy issue? Does that have any place? Could that find a platform in 2021 America? Well, it could certainly never find it on mainstream media and probably not on PBS anymore. But, I mean, the good thing that we do have, I don't want to be too much of a pessimist, is we have all these outlets. Yes, there's a great group called Intelligence Squared. I've been debates with them. They invite conservatives on to debate uh, liberals, and, and and so there are a lot of platforms still. It's going to be hard for them to shut down everything, but it is really menacing the way the mainstream media is joining is become an arm of the Democratic Party, and just wants to use that power to silence conservatives and to keep them out of the public square. 
John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times, co-author of The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show and uh, turning our attention to the sports world. It's, it's always interesting in any world, but perhaps particularly the sports world, uh, when uh, a lot of times. Uh, Players are paid a lot of money not to play. Coaches are played, paid a lot of money not to coach. I think of, uh, gosh, Charlie Meyer after he got fired from uh, Notre Dame and then Kansas. He was being paid by both Notre Dame and Kansas not to coach and in the millions of dollars, obviously. Uh, so it's always interesting when people walk away from money. I recall perhaps the best example of what I'm talking about, you know, their own sort of sense of personal honor. Gil Mesh. Remember Gil Mesh? He was a pitcher for the Royals. He uh, retired in advance of his uh, final year because he wasn't going to be able to play. He was injured. He wasn't going to, and this is like 2011. He wasn't going to be able to play. And uh, he could have just uh, been on the injured reserve list and collected another $12 million. But basically he said, look, if I, if I can't play, then I'm not going to take the 12 million bucks. So he just, I'm not taking the 12 million bucks, not taking the money for the last year of my contract. And I'm going to retire from the game. Uh, so we have a, a sort of another such incident uh, coming out of, uh, Utah State and uh, their former coach, Gary Anderson, who was fired back in November. Anderson, you know, he's like a lot of college coaches, some interesting decisions. He's left some programs high and dry, arguably, uh, sometimes. But he's this is the second time he's done it. He told the school, uh, Utah State, which fired him in November, as I mentioned, that uh, he doesn't want the money that he's entitled to. He was owed $2.7 million, a $900,000 salary with three years remaining on his deal. And um, he said, look, it's not my style to be paid not to coach, so I don't want the balance of my contract. So he's walking away from $2.7 million. That is not inconsequential. Uh, and this is, you know, he's, again, the, the, the Yahoo story on this sort of talks more about his coaching career. You know, he gets a gig at Wisconsin, then he leaves Wisconsin to become head coach at Oregon State, and then that goes badly, then he's forced out in his second season. But that $2.7 million in Utah? So, yeah, some of the coaching decisions and some of the coaching performances, or at least the team performances while he was coach, are not particularly notable. But at Oregon State, the Beavers went 2-10 and 10 in his first season, 4-8 and eight in his second, before he resigned, and this was apparently not expected, following a 1-5 and five start in 2017. He uh, agreed to waive the remainder of his contract, which spanned through the 2021 season, would have paid him in excess of $12 million. $2.7 million at Utah State, $12 million at Oregon State, walked away from. Saying at the time uh, on Oregon State, waiving my contract is the correct decision. It enables the young men in the program to move forward and concentrate on the rest of the season. Coaching is not about the mighty dollar. It's about teaching and putting young men in a, in a position to succeed on and off the field. Success comes when all parties involved are moving in the same direction. So, you know, whatever you want to say, picking apart his coaching career and some of the decisions and 
perhaps some of the decisions that can be described as erratic. The bottom line is this guy has walked away from more than $14 million that he was contractually entitled to because he doesn't want to be paid to not work. There's an example in there somewhere. I don't care how good or bad a coach you think he is. This is Dan Proffer. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at uh, danproftshow.com, at Dan Proft, and at Dan Proft Show on social media. Oregon weighing race-based vaccine preferences. The state's vaccine advisory committee group of 27 individuals tasked with devising a vaccine sequencing plan focused on health equity to ensure the needs of systemically affected populations, communities of color, tribal communities, people with intellectual developmental disabilities are met. In Chicago, Lori Lightfoot uh, pursuing the same. So uh, 25-year-old, I don't care what your race is, healthy 25-year-old should be prioritized uh, over an 80-year-old because the 25-year-old is Latino and the 80-year-old is white. So, uh, again, the race equity ideology means old people have to be sacrificed on the altar of racial outcomes that we desire. That's the real world implication of in part of what we were talking about, in addition to how it plays out in all of the other sectors mentioned. And it's permeated every sector in society. So this is part of the folly of the Biden era when it comes to public policy, where you're talking about lives on the line. And then there's just the straight up folly where you're talking about uh, mass delusion. And that, of course, implicates mask wearing. Bridget Fatassi had, I think, the the definitive tweet on the topic. The Illuminati gathers on a yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean. Quote, I'm bored. How many masks can we get these dumb fracks to wear? Unquote. Yeah, I think that's about the basis of that policy and the suggestion as such. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment, chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition as well. Phil, thanks for joining us. Hey, great to be with you. So uh, two masks, three masks, uh, four masks. Uh, Cats and dogs need to be vaccinated. Absolutely. According to researchers at a number of universities, including the University of Minnesota, not because there is even one confirmed case of transmission from a cat or dog to a person, but because it's possible. And I guess black tabbies would be ahead of the line of 80 year old white guys, too. By the way, Oregon has the worst vaccine distribution in the entire country by age. Only 13 percent of their vaccines have gone to people over age 70, which is where almost all of the serious morbidity and mortality of the disease is. And so it's not a harmless thing. It's not sloganeering. These states that are choosing to put politics ahead of saving lives are going to kill people. Well, and and you you write about this, too. I mean, so much of this has been the promotion of this illusion, which has fed so much of the delusion of control, control over nature, you know, control over the economy. We turn off the economy for a little bit, then we just flip it back on. Like a machine. Yeah, it's it's really insane. The problem is we've got politicians and public health officials, which is really just another flavor of politician, who are unwilling to ever admit that 
you know, we can't stop a highly infectious respiratory virus through government dictates. That simple and obvious fact is out of bounds for them. And so it always has to be, you know, no, no, double mask, triple mask. Uh, we're going to lock down harder. We're going to close more things. It, it, you know, about a week ago, California passed Florida for total per capita COVID cases cumulative since this thing started. So I don't know how anyone can look at that and say, well, you know, the problem is we didn't lock down hard enough or we didn't enforce it hard enough or it was the people who didn't follow the dictates. And it's kind of, well, you know, if people can't follow your dictates, they're not very helpful from a public health standpoint. You've got to consider that, you know, if it's going to be sustainable for months and months and months and months. And I just think at the end of this, pretty much everyone who was going to have the virus is still going to have it, except now you've got all of these economic problems and social problems and educational problems that were created by these futile attempts to stop a highly infectious respiratory virus. Something else that's really been interesting to watch is in terms of under the heading of illusion of control, the people in charge pretend like they're a steady hand on the rudder when in point of fact they have been the greatest hysterics the greatest demagogues they're the ones who have shown no restraint yeah i mean right from the top the king of our country anthony fauci has been on literally every side of every significant question in this thing don't mask mask double mask wear goggles there's no asymptomatic transmission there's tons of asymptomatic transmission uh, herd immunity thresholds the regular formula we use, we've used forever which is about 67 percent based on the r number no now it's 80 85 percent and, you know, I, I don't know how you can continue to take people seriously who change what they say, uh, you know, left and right. And, of course, the politicians have been even worse. And, you know, when they change, they change completely. And anyone who disagrees is uh, anti-science or, or is a heretic. I mean, right from the beginning, when they were calling for these lockdowns based on what Imperial College London and Harvard were saying, anyone who said, no, actually, that's the wrong strategy, according to Stanford and Oxford, they say, oh, you're anti-science. You like the Stanford and Oxford scientists, you're anti-science. Only our scientists count as science. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, this has been the attitude uh, from the beginning of this thing. And, you know, what they claim is so obvious. Everyone knows lockdowns work really where? Where have they worked more than temporarily except for a couple of places, you know, Australia and New Zealand that are islands and have strict border control and got it early enough that they could contain it? I mean, in the U.S. and Europe, it was already widespread before we even knew it existed. You're never going to put that genie back in the bottle. It's just consistent with the overall approach to society, which is to say if government isn't effective at doing something, the problem is it's not big enough. So double down. I mean, literally, you normally we just double down with other people's money. Now we just now we're double down. We're doubling down with personal protective way, equipment. By the way, guys, we now have a treatment, a therapeutic for this that's extremely effective. We've got the monoclonal antibodies from Eli Lilly and from Regeneron. They're about 70% effective in reducing hospitalization. Everybody over the age of 65 who tests positive qualifies for them. Lots of people who are under 65 also qualify if they have medical conditions or, you know, some other high-risk condition. We've got something that works. They're infusion centers all over the country in all 50 states, and yet... None of our public health people ever talk about it. They don't say, if you're 65 plus and test positive, this is where the infusion center is in our town. You need to go get it. It works. And they, you know, if they were focused on that, instead of having about 75% of the doses going unused, which is where we are right now, we'd be doing much better than all of this scolding and all of this trying to blame people for catching a virus. So, I mean, that's the other thing that really drives me nuts right now is we actually have a treatment. This is not like it was a year ago where you, it was sort of you can't do anything. We have a treatment that's extremely effective, and yet I almost never see our public 
public health officials talk about it. In addition to that, we have some caution about the vaccines for certain individuals, like the World Health Organization telling pregnant women not to take the Moderna vaccine yesterday, that story out. Um, So then if a pregnant woman got the virus, then what would you tell her to do? Obviously, you look at therapeutics, and and it's, it's not just the monoclonal antibody that's shown promise real effectiveness, but but ivermectin continues to be talked about and and uh, other such treatments. In addition to that, yesterday you had Merck announce that it's suspending its pursuit of a vaccine and focusing instead on two therapeutics that it has under development, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it's nice to see some of the vaccines fail because it tells you that they're not just rushing them all through no matter what. It is good from that standpoint. The one thing that I find a little bit disappointing about Merck is there was some pretty suggestive evidence early on that the MMR vaccine had some cross coverage, which might explain why young people who are always up to date on their MMR uh, are at near zero risk. And, you know, we typically don't give boosters to older people very often. And I thought that research was really interesting. Merck, which is the only manufacturer of MMR in this country, totally downplayed it, said they had no interest in it. Instead, they were going to develop their own coronavirus-specific vaccines, and of course now they pulled the plug on those, and you know it's sort of irrelevant now whether MMR has a cross-protective effect because you know we have vaccines now. But I think you know a year ago that would have been it would have been uh, much more helpful if they'd kind of embraced that instead of downplaying it. But look, no matter what, you're going to have people. The, the disease is still going to be around. No vaccine is perfect, and it's never going to be uh, attractive to everyone. And therapeutics are much much better targeted than vaccines because you're treating people who already have the disease as opposed to trying to get everyone who doesn't have it to do something preventively. And so it's really important to have effective therapeutics. And I agree with you, by the way, that the ivermectin trials were very, very encouraging. I'm surprised that we haven't seen more of a focus on that in this country. The countries that have done that have had pretty good results with it. But, you know, for whatever reason, if it's not a patented, expensive biotech drug, there's not much interest in it in this country. But that's why I'm so surprised that the antibodies, you know, the the antibody treatments are not more popular because they're exactly the kind of drug we usually love in this country. Phil Kirpin, president of the American Commitment and chairman of the Internet Freedom Coalition as well. Phil, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. All right. Have a good one, guys. 2021 is already off to a disturbing start for conservatives. We've seen Twitter unilaterally shut down President Trump's account. The conservative platform Parler was booted off the App Store by Apple. And big tech is muzzling free speech at a speed that nobody could have predicted. Nobody except biologist and evolutionary theorist Brett Weinstein, who appeared in the film No Safe Spaces to issue this warning, about political correctness running amok. If this is allowed to continue, it is going to work its way into the entire apparatus of government, journalism, maybe most seriously into the tech sector, which has become the governance apparatus for the new public square. YouTube and Google, Facebook and Twitter dictate whose voices can be heard. And if those entities start trying to engineer the conversation to adhere to the rules laid out with these phony Trojan horse terms, disaster will be the result. You need to see the full movie No Safe Spaces today. For a preview of the politically correct dangers facing America, just go to SalemNow.com and download your copy of No Safe Spaces or order the DVD. It's fast, easy to do, and you and your family need to see this important film now before any more of our freedoms are muzzled. Again, go to SalemNow.com and get your copy of No Safe Spaces. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Joel Ross writes a newsletter for Citadel Realty. It's a uh, one I've referenced before, sort of a, a good newsletter that tackles uh, macroeconomic issues, gives you a macro take on what's happening. Here's his review of uh, Joe Biden so far out of the gate. Biden was off to a great start in his first 24 hours. His executive order should raise costs, reduce energy independence, anger two key allies, cut jobs, strengthen unions, materially increase regulations, raise gas prices, and increase inflation even more quickly than many thought. In addition, his firings at NLRB and CFPB will result in massive new regulations and fines on innocent companies, and he is just getting going. And you thought Trump was the best at upsetting people? Stopping the pipeline has reduced good-paying union jobs by many thousands, especially if you count jobs at steel companies producing the pipe, collateral jobs to support the construction and those that suppliers to steel plants. Canada is furious for the job losses there, and they claim the order violates the USMCA. They plan to sue. States involved are angry because it costs them substantial tax revenue. Gas prices will eventually rise with less supply of oil when combined with the order shutting drilling on federal land, which I will add, of course, also upset one of his identitarian constituencies, so he claims, and that would be Native Americans, a tribe in Utah, sent a letter to the Department of Interior excoriating the Biden administration for the cutting off of drilling on federal land. But just on the Keystone Pipeline, there was something else in that executive order that went uh, really underreported. Section 7 of the order, which includes the revocation of the permit for the Keystone Pipeline, also revokes several climate and energy-focused executive orders penned by the Trump administration. And also the uh, Trump order banning Chinese communist involvement in the U.S. power grid. That is now an open question. The Trump-era order sought to ban, replace, and set new criteria on bulk power system electric equipment coming from a foreign country or national that poses a national security threat. The uh, order from the press release on Trump's order prohibits utilities that supply critical defense facilities from procuring from the People's Republic of China specific bulk power system electric equipment that poses an undue risk to the bulk power system, the security resilience of critical infrastructure, the economy, national security, safety, security of Americans. It's what we've talked about, including with national security and technology folks, the, the 5G grid. You don't want China controlling building your 5G grid and then having access to it. Well, according to Biden's executive order on the Keystone Pipeline, the fate of that Trump prohibition on China's participation in 5G, the 5G grid here, that is going to be up to the Secretary of Energy and the Director of the Office of Management and Budget to jointly consider whether to recommend that a replacement order be issued. So he's reopening the door to Chinese communist involvement in our power grid. Oh, and by the way, that's uh, a week after China slapped sanctions on 28 former Trump administration officials, including Mike Pompeo, including HH Secretary Alex Azar, including White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro, including former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, prohibiting those individuals and their immediate families from entering mainland China, Hong Kong and Macau. They're also restricted from doing business with China, as are any companies or institutions associated with them because they were so antagonistic to China on behalf of the president. So Trump administration officials get sanctioned. Biden issues an executive order. The top line, of course, is the Keystone Pipeline because of the energy independence and job implications. And the subtext is opening the door possibly to China getting back involved with the development of our 5G grid here. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Hi, Dad. Kind of a policy nerd. 
So I actually spent the last couple of nights reading these executive orders. There's been a blizzard of them. You just mentioned one. And by the way, you know, um, this is really consistent with the cartoon that we had in our newsletter the day after the election with Biden with the red hat on his head that said, make China great again. What's wrong with having the uh, the uh, Chinese communists in charge of our electric grid system and our 5G system? Gee, that, that sounds like a really good idea. One of the ones that I would add to what you're talking about, you know, remember one of the things you and I were proudest of that Trump did was remember that declaration uh, that for every new regulation under the Trump administration, at least two would be repealed. And it ended up uh, about an eight to one ratio. That is for every new regulation, about eight were repealed. Well, one of the first executive orders that nobody paid much attention to was repealing that. And I love the language that Biden used. He said this policy is unnecessarily frustrating our regulators. Yeah. Well, that was the idea. <laughs> yeah. And and also, too, I mean, again, citing your outlet there, the Wall Street Journal, a few days ago, noting that under Trump, the United States led the world in carbon emission reduction, which is now 25 percent below 2005 levels before covid. And so we're signed back on to the Paris Accord, which has no impact on China and India. Right. And China and Germany right. are in the process of building more coal plants while the U.S. has been decommissioning most of them. What are we doing? Yeah, so for every time we shut down a coal plant, India and China built 10 new coal plants. <laughs> and somehow that's going to reduce, you know, carbon emissions in the in the global atmosphere. Uh, well, but, but also, also too, also too, Germany is building more coal plants. It's not oh, just yeah, the, they, it's not just the, the east, it's the west. So about 10, 15 years ago, China, went, I mean, Germany went all in on green energy. You know, and this is the, you know, the German engineering. They have all these manufacturing plants and uh, they engineer so much, the BMWs and all the cars. And uh, after about seven years of that policy, it, it, compl- it completely destroyed their industrial base because they're using energy that's, you know, two or three times more expensive than, you know, the United States and other countries were. So they completely abandoned the green energy stuff and they went back to fossil fuels and, and they're back in business. Meanwhile, we're repeating their mistakes. So here is my question for you. What percentage of our energy comes from wind and solar power? Uh, I'm going to say less than 4%. Somewhere around 4 to 5%. Folks, where are we going to get the other 80% of our energy? Uh, I got the answer, Steve. I got the answer for you. You only need that 4% because we're going to shut all the businesses down. If you wanted to shut down the American economy, if you wanted to have the sinister, you know, approach to destroying the American economy, then what would you do? You would shut down the energy sources of the economy and it would shut down every factory, every airline, every store. But you don't screw around with country's energy source. And, you know, we were starting to see the price of gasoline tick up. And that's not an accident. You can keep pushing up gas prices because it's very simple economics 100, guys. When you restrict the supply of something, what happens to its price? It goes up. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're playing a very dangerous game here. In November of 2020, uh, I think Trump's basically one of his last months in office, for the first time in any of our lifetimes, do you know how much oil we imported from Saudi Arabia? Zero. First time in our lifetimes. And that's because we were producing oil and gas here. And we had pipelines that we could get it to places. That's a pretty amazing statistic. For the first time in our lifetime, we're not dependent on Saudi Arabia for one drop of oil. I guarantee you, a year from now, we are going to be importing a lot more oil from Saudi Arabia. 
Uh, well, I, you know, as we're repairing our relationships around the world in the Biden administration, uh, we're doing a great job uh, out of the gate with Canada. Also, Mexico, none too <laughs> happy with the Biden administration. The Biden, Joe Biden has stopped uh, all of the uh, construction of the wall on the border. That defaults on $3 billion worth of signed contracts. One estimate is it will cost $700 million or more to get the U.S. out of those contracts. Uh, the cartels are moving operations to the Tucson area where there is no wall. And, of course, we have the caravans uh, marshalling on the southern border, creating law enforcement issues for Mexico as well. So in the first week, uh, we have managed under the, uh, the the wonderful, unifying leadership of Joe Biden to upset both Canada and Mexico. You know, I warned you guys they're out of their cages now. And uh, there's a blizzard of these these policies coming out of the Biden administration. They're just getting started. You know, you talk about the wall. I'm very pro-immigration. I think immigrants are great for our country. They've really kept our economy running over the last year. But the idea is, if you're going to build the wall, what's the point of getting 70% of the way done with building the wall and then stopping it? Steve Moore, <laughs> economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Appreciate it. Have a great week, guys. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Incredible pictures of shark that looks like Donald Trump sparked social media frenzy. Pictures of some nine-foot shark off the coast of Jupiter, Florida, had uh, social media all up in a lather saying it looked like Trump. And then it was, it looks like Trump eating a Big Mac and so on and so forth. You just can't quit Trump, can you? Uh, it's such an interesting relationship between the leftist press corps, entertainment industry, social media trolls, and President Trump. But I suppose the question is, um, considering the left are advocates essentially of the slow uh, but very methodical death of comedy what will that look like in the biden era will it be like it was in the obama era where the joking around was mainly in the direction of how great you are tim matheson had to apologize for tweeting out uh, it's nice to have a first lady who can speak english he didn't understand that he's a member of the tribe that has killed comedy so will we have what we had oh i don't know the first go around of joe biden running for president or the second go around of joe biden when he was the vice president johnny carson on Joe Biden leaving the campaign in 1988, you know, because he was a plagiarist. And Biden says, not to worry, he reassured his staff. He said, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. <laughs> yes, sir. Robin Williams. Joe Biden. What the f***? <laughs> Joe says sh- that even people at Tourette's go, no. <laughs> no. What is going on? Joe is like your uncle who's got a new drug and hasn't got the dosage right. I'm proud to work with Barack America. He's not a superhero, you idiot. Come here. When FDR was on television, there was no TV back then. Come here, Joe. (laughs) Sit down. That was more than a decade ago. And now Joe Biden has been transformed by the same media and entertainment industry to Christ Gandhi. So I was intrigued by this piece in The Spectator. James Corden and the problem with post-Trump comedy. What's the problem? There is none. 
For more on this, please be joined by Simon Evans, who's a British comedian and host of the BBC Four radio series. Simon Evans goes to market. Simon, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Very, very welcome. Thank you. So uh, what space do we have for uh, those who would take attack like a Johnny Carson or a Robin Williams in the West in 2021? Well, it's a, we're moving out of a, a unique era, aren't we? Almost a singularity in the political comedy interface. We'd reached a, a degree of polarization that even Johnny Carson, I think, would probably not, not have recognized or quite understood or known how to walk around. And it's going to be very difficult for professional comedians and talk show hosts to walk it back from there because I think they felt, rightly or wrongly, that, that Trump sort of represented something more than merely the opposition. He seemed to represent a sort of asteroid in human form as far as they were concerned. And and anything that might have like added nuance or ambiguity to their desire to see him gone would have been just uh, just unthinkable. So, as you say, it wasn't so much that they were handling Biden with kid gloves. It, he was simply not handled at all. Now that he's in power, perhaps they can adjust their setting somewhat and notice that the man seems hardly able to finish the same sentence that he started and so on on, on quite a regular basis. And this might have some impact on his ability to, to legislate. But it, it's going to be a bit of a climb, I think. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that, that's it. I mean, what we're getting to is the nature uh, not of politicians changing so much, although you can say that Trump's personality was an outlier. Certainly his policy mm. agenda wasn't really for the most part. That's the remarkable thing about it, despite all of no, that. No, I, despite all I of, have a although, number of friends yeah. in, in Britain who agree on that, actually. I mean, but it's one of those things you almost have to have in private conversation groups. You know, you, you well, can't even say out loud that, well, hang on, let's look at his foreign policy. Is that really so different or disastrous? You know, but, well, 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 right. But so, the, so that speaks to a change in culture in the West and uh, those mavens of culture in places like the the political press corps and entertainment. And and I mean, to me, mm-hmm. it seems like rather than focusing on whether Trump, uh, Trump, 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 even after Trump has left the stage or how they're going to handle Biden, uh, perhaps the conversation should be zero focused on who they have become. I absolutely agree. Yes, it's changed the nature of I mean, the court jester kind of notion, the idea of speaking truth to power, which I'm sure they thought they were doing to some extent, but it became far more partisan than that, didn't it? And it became far less like the, the jester as, a, uh, as an independent kind of like a, a ball bearing rattling around, you know, which I always think is their purpose, a bit like in a can of aerosol paint. You know, that's that's the point of the comedian, really, to, to just create havoc and chaos and, and to undermine all sensible propositions. <laughs> Uh, instead of which they became a de facto part of the of the resistance yep. and the, the opposition. And the same thing has happened in Britain, of course, over the last four years with Brexit, which was very much our Trump in many regards, a sort of populist uprising and one which detached people from their traditional moorings and caused a lot of people to lose their minds and lose their sense of proportion and, and to see what was essentially the end of a trade agreement as the end of the civilized world. When we come back with British comedian Simon Evans, I want to stick on this topic and talk about uh, comedians serving as sentinels of the cancel culture. More with British comedian Simon Evans right after this.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, talking to British comedian Simon Evans about uh, the uh, censorious culture in the West, including in comedy. And you have so many of these comedians, Simon, that uh, really have decided to serve as sort of part of the communication shop of the Democrat Socialist Party here in America. So they, they, they're running around getting offended uh, when somebody refuses to call Jill Biden, Dr. Jill Biden, because she has some Ph.D. in education rather than making making a a satirical comment about all these people running around demanding you genuflect before their sort of phony baloney titles. They rally to the defense and 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 cloak and, 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 and drape themselves in the cloak of misogyny, just like a political hack would. I mean, they're pathetic is what they are. And and so. Uh, there is and they're and they're reverential, which is the death of comedy. They're reverential to politicians. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, this is the flip side, I suppose, isn't it, of of the identity politics or is it the flip side or is it just the, the front facing side of, of identity politics that it has? It, you know, it, it creates an inverse hierarchy, uh, which is, um, as you say, anathema to the whole point of satire. Yes, ideally in satire, you should comfort the afflicted and, and afflict the comfortable. But every every target has to be a fair target, you know, and a handful of people still recognize that. And Ricky Gervais still gets headlines when he does his Golden Globes Awards and, and, and there are no sacred cows when he's around. But, right. but very, very few comedians are, are still maintaining that that degree of you know, we, we have our license. We have our, our, our iron dome, if you like. You know, we're, we're, we, we should be able to say what we like about who we like. But as you, as you correctly say, there are certain people who have an escalating hierarchy, uh, an intersectional hierarchy, if you like, of, of, um, of invulnerability. They, they, these certain things that cannot be and must not be uh, mocked or, um, or, or sneered at or belittled or trivialized. Uh, and as you say, I, I mean, the, the Dr. Biden thing is, is extraordinary. I, I know a few people who have a doctorates in non-medical degrees, and I don't know anyone who demands in any circumstances <laughs> that they be called doctor. I mean, I think, in fact, to be honest, in most situations, unless you're actually giving medical advice, even medical doctors don't demand it. You know, yeah, well, it, well, <laughs> it can, can slow up a dinner party. Sir. I, let, let me ask you a question just about how comedy has evolved and, and whether you think this has been impactful. You know, these these comedians who start to take themselves seriously, like like most of them who are and, and, and Hollywood celebrities, most of them are ill-educated. They couldn't plot a supply and demand curve uh, on a chart, uh, <laughs> but but they're, they're going to weigh in on all matters geopolitical. The Daily Show with Jon Stewart uh, that last week tonight now on HBO with John Oliver, where they try to tackle some like real issues and political issues or Colbert mm. has he transitioned from the Colbert show to the, the, the late show. Um, you know, they, they consider themselves like, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know, uh, Walter Cronkite with a sense of humor, uh, mm. you know, Tom Brokaw with a, a, you know, with, with more pithiness. They think they're actually like serious people and serious news people and serious policy people, but they're also hilarious. And I wonder how that has impacted comedy. I mean, I, w- I will just say I, I enjoyed from what I've seen of it. I have enjoyed some of certainly of John Stewart. I thought he was, uh, you know, a very skilled and smooth and accomplished operator um, on that TV show. And, and also some of the books he wrote were very funny as well. Um, you know, as a format, as a notion, the idea that a uh, an intelligent and urbane presence, you know, is entitled to to front a show that is well researched and so on. It doesn't necessarily preclude them. The fact that they're supposed to be a comedian as well or haven't actually got a, you know, a PhD. No. 
PhD in economics. I'm, I'm willing to willing to listen and watch those shows. But it is definitely a dangerous lure. It can create a kind of a higher esteem, a higher level of authority and status, which we are all as human beings. We love status. There's nothing that motivates us more than status. You know, man, woman, uh, across races, across all yes. kind of cultures, status is desirable. And, and nothing raises your status uh, like being put behind a desk in, a, in an Armani suit with like a team of 30 writers to equip you <laughs> with the sharp comebacks and the, and the zingers, you know. Whereas when you're a comedian, like the traditional jobbing comedian, you're living on your witch, you're generally sleeping in your car, you know, you are, you're, you're you know, jobbing up and down the country and, and, and clocking up motorway miles and you're in a rumpled shirt and you get on stage and there's a drunk in the front row who's fallen asleep and been sick in his own lap and you've got to deal with that kind of shit. It's a very, very different proposition to the kind of ultra smooth, as you say, the John Oliver, you know, John Stewart kind of proposition. And it is enormously tempting. And I think also, as we say with everything nowadays, social media has also had a, an effect insofar as it means that in between live shows where you demonstrate your chops in front of a live audience over a 20 minute sprint, you are also capable of amassing millions of followers, you know, where people hang on your every word and expect to hear what you have to think about, you know, uh, children in cages at borders and things. These are things that you can immediately get thousands of retweets for, for you know, uh, creating a, a pithy comment about. And that in itself stokes the messiah complex you know yeah. you start to think you're not just an entertainer you're somebody who has a message you're somebody who can deliver their people and that is a very dangerous mindset to develop yeah no i think that's a good description of it. And, and it's not to say that there's nobody you know i don't want to overstate the case either because there's no need to overstate the case i mean you have people out there like Chappelle who uh, will uh, go mm. right after yeah. his audience and go after the sacred cows of Bill Burr, I think is a, a lesser, but another example of that. So it's out there. It's interesting. Those two are always the two that get named. I suspect that whoever's third is probably not in the same league. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, Anthony Jeselnik comes to mind, but for sort of different mm. reasons, not so political. But, um, right. but, but, I, but, but I mean, like, like from the days of yore, uh, you think Lenny Bruce, you think George Carlin, and I, I just don't see a, a lot of comedians willing to, to you know, to, to plod that path. No, it's very true. I mean, it's funny. Carlin, I've sort of grown into as I've got older. When I was younger, I didn't think he was that funny. I could see he was compelling and he was making some interesting points about the structure of society and, you know, the the nature of real power and so on. But um, but it, it rarely seemed to sort of trigger a real belly laugh. It was it felt, especially as he got older, that he was. He was doing something and it wasn't quite stand up. It was a totally valid thing for him to be doing, but it wasn't really funny to me. Now I sort of feel I'm increasingly more impressed and more in awe of him and feel we need more of that kind of person. Um, that's because you're getting you're you getting know, to be a crusty old man like me and, and everybody yeah, else who I enjoys guess that's Carlin. It. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's true, though, isn't it? Uh, Simon Evans. Uh, uh, I don't know. I'm sorry, Simon, we're up against it. But Simon Evans, British comedian, host of the BBC4 radio series, Simon Evans Goes to Market. Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care. Show.com.
Welcome back to the show. To close today, um, uh, why don't we uh, have a Pledge of Allegiance, huh? Uh, I just want to turn it over to uh, L.A. City Councilman uh, Kevin DeLeon to take us out with the pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Under visible, uh, pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Yeah. Which stands one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Boy, that's a chore, isn't it? <laughs> oh, the, uh, the deep intellects, those bright bulbs, our betters on uh, major urban center city councils around the nation. Uh, he was a state legislator before he was a L.A. city councilman, too. And uh, boy, he struggled with the pledge. That's even before they get to the dollars and cents issues facing L.A. after a year shutdown. How about that? public safety issues. Now, interestingly, friends over at uh, Truth and Accounting, truthandaccounting.org, if you want to check it out, just issued their financial state of the city's 2021 report. Now, this is pre-pandemic because cities are so slow in financial in filing their financial papers that uh, you're sort of a lagging a year behind. That's just the nature of it. But uh, uh, L.A. is not as bad as one might think. Uh, uh, looking at the top 75 most populous cities in America and the debt per capita, L.A. only has about four thousand dollars of debt per capita as compared to the worst financial, the state in the worst financial condition of the 75 most populous. That would be New York. Chicago is second worst. And actually, if you treat New York, Chicago, the same way you treat New York and include the school system rather than separating it out as they do in their financials in New York versus Chicago then Chicago is the worst. But you get the point. L.A. is one twelfth, one thirteenth of the debt load per capita that is being borne by Chicago or New York taxpayers. So it's just sort of interesting. I don't know that that uh, goes any credit goes to uh, Councilman Kevin Leone on that. And we'll see what the L.A., like the rest of American cities, look like coming out of uh, the pandemic. But it is worth noting in 20 at the end of 2019, Total debt just among the 75 most populous cities amounted to $333 billion total debt before the pandemic. That's just the top 75 cities. Even in Biden's audacious $1.9 trillion COVID relief 3.0 plan, there's only about $350 billion for states and cities alike. You're in the trillions when you start to include states. So if you think the federal government is coming to bail out your uh, city or state, they can provide some funny money to extend the financial houses of cards for just a little while longer, keep them propped up. But ultimately, it's just a reminder that all of these problems that were imposed locally by the response will have to be addressed locally by politicians like Kevin DeLeon. Good luck with that, L.A. Thanks for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please stay informed so you can be rational and act bravely so we can live free and join us again on the program tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.